Hebrews chapter 13, we are on verse 7. Hebrews 13 and verse 7. We're starting here now with a new paragraph. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their contact, imitate, conduct, imitate their faith. Now, in the bigger context of the book of Hebrews, there was this uh, temptation towards apostasy, and they had gotten good teaching. Because Hebrews starts out with, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Christ who has spoken. You, know, you have the patriarchs, you have Christ, and then Hebrews 2, those who were eyewitnesses and confirmed the word, the apostles. And whoever uh, had done the original teaching, the Hebrews had good teachings. And they had uh, good examples to follow. So now in this section of exhortation, they're told to remember their former leaders who had um, spoke the truth of the word, who had lived the truth of the word, and therefore served as an example for these people to follow in order to not be uh, led astray by some of the things that are going on today. Okay, Hebrews 13.7, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now, the word led here would be someone um, entrusted with responsibility. The same word is used in Acts 15 and verse 22. Uh, I was talking last week in the sermon about elders and, and church leaders and the relationship between leaders and the entire congregation. And I suggested that the New Testament isn't creating uh, some sort of an extensive hierarchy like a pyramid with somebody at the top and then it trickles down through these layers of, of uh, bureaucracy or authority or what have you. But the New Testament basically has the, the apostles who have the authoritative word from Christ that they impart to the churches and for us, that's the scripture. That's where we get that, not from a person. And then the elders who were responsible to uh, not only live this live a way that would be indicative of lives that were changed by Christ, but to teach and to be faithful. So I talked about that last week in the in the sermon. So these elders would be the type of leaders that the New Testament discusses. And their primary duty of elders is they spoke the word of God to you. The one duty that trumps all other possible duties, if there's any conflict, if there's any time we're too busy to get everything done and too many problems and details going on in life that could consume us, one duty that is more important than all other duties, as far as Christian leaders are concerned, is to speak the word of God to the people. That's that's way more important than everything else. Now, some people would dispute that, but I think they only dispute it because they don't understand how powerful the Word of God is. They don't realize that the Word of God has the power to change people's lives. The Word of God has the power to sanctify. The Word of God keeps us out of trouble. And so if the elders focus their duties on bringing and speaking the Word of God accurately and fully to the congregation, the reason that has to be primary is because that gets rid of a lot of other problems in the long run. So if you spend, spend all your time trying to put out fires, uh, just administratively, and this, solve this problem, solve that problem, solve the other one, to the point where the Word of God gets pushed aside, you'll end up with more problems because they'll snowball. 
But if the Word of God is taught, God will change lives. And what happens is pretty soon you get more and more people that are leadership type people that can teach Bible studies, that can pray for other people and help other people along. And the congregation starts helping itself, helping one another type of thing. So that's ideally how it should go. Yes. Didn't Paul place a premium on uh, prophecy in the book of Acts in the spiritual gifts section? And then... in, in 1 Corinthians. Oh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Yeah, count those elders who who are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor hard in word and doctrine, it says. And so, as I was saying last Sunday, uh, word and doctrine is a a hard, copious labor. That's the word copiao, is labor. And it's something that would be tedious if it's done properly. And but the, the but that should be held in such a high premium that young people feeling called to the ministry will want to gain the tools to be able to do that, and that all of the congregation would have a hunger to to have the tools to study and teach the word of God, and so that's what these leaders did. They spoke the word. So because of that, and because that they lived out what they taught, they were worthy of emulation. So the authority was in the Word, um, not in the official office. And if there's anything in church history that's led the church astray, uh, it's this whole thing of this uh, prelates and dignitaries, or even the bishops. And I'll tell you, it started right away. No sooner had the apostles passed from the scene of history, and the monopiscopate came into the church. And so the, the Roman Catholic uh, theologians and other people will say uh, bishop, having bishops over a city goes way back. It goes all the way back in the early part of the church. They're right, it did. But so did the belief that baptism saves you. They had that belief in by 150-something A.D. Uh, they had such a heightened view of baptism that were people waiting to be baptized until just before they died for fear that they'd sin after they were baptized. Because they thought if, if they were baptized and then sin, there was no further remission of sins. And in order to mitigate that bad doctrine, they came up with the idea of penance. And so then you, so the, some of the stuff that's what, what we see in Roman Catholicism was there in people like Irenaeus and early church leaders, yes. I could hear supporters of that thought look at this verse and say, remember your leaders, consider blah, 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 and say, yes, we should respect our leaders. We should hold them worthy of, of what exactly what the Catholic Church, for example, is doing. How would you uh, overcome that argument? Well, because in the case of the Hebrews here, He's telling them to remember those past tense who led you and spoke the word of God and considered the result of their conduct. Whoever they had as the present leaders weren't doing that, and so the church was heading into apostasy. So they had an objective standard about what a good leader looked like. All right, so if a bad one's leading you into apostasy, you're not, there's no benefit. See, uh, church history is so interesting. Uh, Patrick, there's something that uh, you may have read about this, but one of the early controversies in the church and bad doctrine sort of snowballs. Okay, so first of all, they started with this idea that baptism saves you. And then they have the monopiscopate. You have one bishop over the city. Early on, early on, even before a Roman Catholic came to exist. Well, then the next thing that happened was there were people that had been baptized by people that ended up being either heretical or immoral. 
And they had a, a the novation controversy was over this. So this guy came along and said that if you've been baptized by a heretic bishop or an immoral bishop, you're lost and you got to get rebaptized by somebody better. So they had a big dispute over that. And they came to the right result, but they still stuck with the, they still had bad doctrine. In other words, rather than getting rid of baptismal regeneration and hanging your salvation on baptism, they came to the conclusion that if the if you were baptized and it turned out that the church official that did it was a heretic or a pervert, um, you're still saved. Because they don't want your salvation to be hanging on how well the bishop did, and you don't have to be rebaptized because God counted that as a valid baptism. Well, that may be true, but you're still stuck with this idea of baptismal regeneration and monopiscopa, which is one bishop over the city. And and then the thing that happened, so they just so you know how this all developed, was they started having persecution, which I mean it had always been around, but it got very intense at different times. And there were people who denied. There were people who, under intense persecution, caved in and denied Christ and went into hiding and just kind of lived like they were in the world and didn't really associate with the church. And then when a new emperor... See, the the persecution was started whenever an emperor, emperor in Rome decided that's what he wanted to do. Some emperors didn't worry about whether there were Christians around or not. Just let them be. Others persecuted them. Well, they would just wait until a new emperor would arise, and then he'd come back to the church, and they'd say, well, we've sinned, we've repented, now we want to be Christian again. And when the people that had stuck the course and had you know, their friends and relatives had been martyred, and some who later in church history, they started jailing Christians rather than killing them, these people were offended. And they said, how can you come back into the church? We confessed, you denied, you have no right to ever be back in the church. Well, then, that's, then that created another crisis because, well, um, what if somebody sins after they're baptized? Can they come back into the church? Well, how do you get them back in? And can they just come waltzing back in with full privileges? And so they made them do penance. They said, you have to prove that you repent and be contrite and do this and do that. And that's how this system came into being uh, that ended up in, in Roman Catholicism. So if you study church history, you'll see that the full-blown problems in the Middle Ages were there in seed form between 150 and 300 A.D. already. Okay, And this idea that the church office stands on its own because it's an office no matter who's in the office, if they're pointed in it, then the office stands, even if the person's a pervert, a heretic, or whatever, if they're in the office, then whatever they say is from God in some sense or another, uh, and God will use it. And that's where that came from. Okay, so you started me on this church history, didn't you, Patrick? <laughs> yes. I'll answer Patrick's question here, but in First uh, Corinthians 4, verse 17, it says... For this cause I have sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring to you into remembrance my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. And what that tells me is if you want to do things biblically, you have to stick with the Bible. Yeah, come back to the apostolic teaching. You cannot even depend on church history. You have to go to the Word. You have to go, but yeah, and, and that's a good verse, by the way, because... Corinth had bad elders. 
And, and there's nowhere in the Bible where it says if you have false teaching coming from leaders, then you just have to obey those leaders because that's what God wants, blind obedience to false leaders. That's not true. The authority in the Scripture, the foundation is Jesus Christ and is laid by Christ and His apostles. And so what you saw there was they had false leaders in Corinth. Paul sent Timothy with Paul's apostolic doctrine to correct it. Okay? And he had the same kind of issue in, in the book of, uh, or the pastoral epistles. So here again, let's go back to Hebrews 13.7. They formerly had good leaders that really taught the true word to them. So the writer of Hebrews says, listen to them, think about what they taught you. He didn't say, listen to false leaders that you got now that aren't preserving you from apostasy. Yes? Um, in Matthew, it talks about the parable of the weeds. And will this apply to that? The wheat and tares? Yeah, and it talks about the seed, sowing good seed. And, and, uh... Isn't that about the world, though? The wheat and tares? I think there probably is a parable that does apply, though, but I don't know if it's that one. But in other parables, isn't the seed compared to the word? Yes, in the sower and the seed. So it, it talks about sowing good seed and sowing bad seed. Yeah. Well, I think the way it works, Mike, is that, as we've been saying over and over again, there's a body of true apostolic teaching. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. All right? And that draws out the boundaries for us. All right? That doesn't mean there isn't disputes. I mean, I have disputes. I've been in more of them all the time, and I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I have so many people angry with me now. Um... I think part of it is if, if, if people know who you are, it gives you, it makes you a target. But I've been getting some really angry disputes from people, and and maybe the disputes about where those boundaries are, and that's for, that's okay. We have to de- if we agree on the authority of Scripture, we can debate what the Scripture says to come to the knowledge of the truth. All right, that's that's a valid thing to do. So because that's why we're trying to figure out what these boundaries are. But we have to acknowledge that they're set by the Lord once for all. They're not set by church. Prelates and the bishops, cardinals, or monsignors, or anybody else that can say, "No, I'm going to draw the boundaries how I want," because then you have the authority of man, not the authority of God's word. Yes. And isn't there another parable about the kingdom of God being like a tree where the birds come? Yeah, it's like a little thing that turns into a mustard seed, and the birds come. And then there's like a drag net that goes through and gets all these fish. Those are like in Matthew 13. There's a bunch. But isn't that you know he's talking about the kingdom of God now? He's talking about these influence that, influences that come in. Well, then there's Matthew 7, the narrow gate. There's the ones who say, Lord, Lord, we did many miracles. Jesus said, I never knew you. There's the ones who say, um, look at all of, look at me. I got all these followers. You know, the multitudes are following me. Jesus said, no, the gate's narrow. And so on. But I think the point here is that you know there's going to be imposters in sheep's clothing trying to tell you that this is what God wants, this is what God desires, this is what God says. And what the apostle here is saying is that no, you have to go back to the word that we preach to you, that you know, the gospel that you received the first. Absolutely. And so it's it's that constant battle. 
Right. Where I think today so many people take things at face value. Well, he's, he's a bishop or he's you know, the pastor of a large church or he wrote a book or something like that. He's on TV. And they he's on TV. <laughs> That's a good sign. If one of you is on TV, it must be right. Yeah. <laughs> they they, like you said, the, the authority is in the word, not the person. Right. And so the reason, notice that they spoke the word to you. The reason is such a powerful thing for the people to have the tools and the scriptures and knowledge of theological issues themselves is that it gives them a survival tool when this kind of thing that you're talking about, Mike, happens. When when people come in looking like the authoritative spokesperson for God, sounding like the authoritative spokesperson for God, and telling you this is the way it has to be, if you have the word spoken to you and you understand what it's supposed to look like, you have a, a way of discerning. Yeah, but does traditions fall in that same well, the word traditions, as it's translated in the New Testament, sometimes means something good. In other words, the traditions would be the apostolic ones, the things that they practiced because it was ordained by the apostles. If the traditions mean that, that's a good thing. But there's another way of using the word traditions in which the traditions of men rather than God's word. So if it's used in that way, then it's a bad thing because people are willing, like Jesus said, you have followed the traditions of men. This is how we do it because it's our tradition. But if it's not biblical, then that's not enough authority. Tradition can't be authority unless it's the Bible. Okay? Does that make a difference? Okay, Word of God. Okay? And considering the result of their conduct. So the accomplishment is another way of translating that. Their faith, like Abel's faith, Hebrews 11, uh, continues to speak. And so there are people in, for us, we could look at church history. Now, church history isn't exclusively where you find the truth. Church history is part of providence that God, what God did and allowed. And there's good and evil in it. There's all kinds of error in church history. But on the other hand, there's some wonderful church historical people to be emulated. And it's right to do that. So there we can, our own selves, look back and say, I, we've seen people that God raised up who were like these people that spoke the word to us, and they were godly, and we can learn from them. And we have people that we admire because what God did through them, not because just of their own persons. So authority was in the word, not in an official office. Um, imitate their faith means to adhere to the word they taught and live according to the example that they lived. Um, I have some cross-references. Well, we'll start at our normal spot here. <laughs> Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. And then, uh, yep, Hebrews 1, 1, and 2. And Acts 14, 23, Patrick. And Linda, 1 Corinthians 4, 16. And Denise, 1 Corinthians 1, 11. And Bob, Philippians 3, 17. Yeah, these Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it seems like there's some good reason to refer to that just about every Sunday, isn't there? Okay, Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. Um, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first begun to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles, 
and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Yes. So that is what that Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 does is it, ta- it takes the word, the words of Jesus, but they're also invested in the apostles. And they spoke that. So that means the whole New Testament are the authoritative words of Christ. That's, that's why that's such an important verse. Okay, then Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In many separate revelations, in different ways, God spoke of old to our forefathers in and by the prophets. But in the last of these days, he has spoken to us in the person of a son, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, also by and through whom he created the worlds in the, in the reaches of space and the ages of time. Okay. Amplified, I take it. Well, it's got a lot of synonyms and explanations yeah, in it. So I, I even skipped some. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> well, there, you know, it's not, it's a nice tool. I, you know, I, I personally, I wouldn't preach from it because it is a little cumbersome, but some of that stuff you do in your sermon. But it's a nice tool because actually that word world there does have to do with more than just this earth. And so that brings that out. So it does bring out the Greek there pretty nicely. Okay, Acts 14.23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So that, that shows early on in church history, already in Acts 14, they were, they were appointing elders in local churches. And the material that I read in the New Testament between Titus, Timothy, the book of Acts and some of the other mentions of church leaders uh, leads me to the conclusion that elders are the church government that's ordained in the New Testament. But I'm not uh, saying that people can't have different forms of church government. Uh, I'm not. So, no, I, I used to think that the elders in the Presbyterian style was the only biblical one, but then I read some material that from uh, a Lutheran source that was arguing for congregational church government based on Matthew 18, and I thought they had very lucid arguments. I thought it was a strong enough argument that I'd give up any exclusive claim. <laughs> All right? I, I think that uh, one way or the other, if, if, if in any congregation, whether they're Presbyterian or congregational-style church government, if the Scripture isn't the final authority for everybody, you're going to get off track. Because a whole congregation could vote for error if that's what they lust for. Or you can have elders go into air. So the scripture itself has to have a functional power and authority in any congregation. And if it does, you're probably not going to get off track. Because if the elders get off track, the congregation will rise up and say no. And if people in the congregation get off track, the elders will say no. Because we're stuck here in the scripture. We're not going to go anywhere else. But if you don't have a, a, a church that cares about the scripture, you can get into air from a lot of different ways. From top to bottom, you can get into air. But we don't do know that they have elders. And what I mean, let me, let me explain the differences. I just introduced this and maybe you're, I saw some puzzled looks. Um, a Presbyterian style government, which is basically what we have here, means that elders are responsible for the church. They're responsible for the spiritual well-being. They're responsible for the teaching. They're responsible for the decisions of the church, but they have to be responsive to the congregation. That's what it says in our constitutional bylaws. Now, uh, typically a congregational style church government 
there's annual votes, okay, of the, of the membership. And the, in, in these annual votes, and sometimes they can have votes more often than that, the congregation votes for their, their own leadership. So they'll typically vote for a senior pastor, yes or no, and for board members that will, they can be called elders or whatever. So that, in that style, the, the elders are given a one year empowerment by the congregation and they can be fired by the congregation. That's congregational. Whereas the elders, uh, style of government, assuming you don't have a big denomination with Episcopal style, which is the bishop telling you, um, here the elders are responsible if somebody resigns or passes from the scene of history, they're responsible to find more elders. With the approval of the congregation, we've always had that here at Twin City Fellowship. We don't put anybody in as an elder if they don't. If the congregation themselves, if everyone doesn't see, not that one person has veto power, but if, if the congregation doesn't say, we believe this person is an elder because they fit the qualifications. You know, if the congregation is agreeable to it, then a person gets appointed as an elder. Okay. The, what's the benefit of a congregational? It seems to me that that would just cause all kinds of problems. Well, uh, from my experience now, I, I've been in, I've, when I was in the Assemblies of God, they were typically congregational. It can work. A lot of things can work if you got godly people in a church. And a lot of things can't work if you got troubles. Uh, I, I saw all kinds of things. One well, of the first church I worked in had a, they had a system, it was a congregational system, but they had a system where the pastor got paid so much depending on how much tithes came in. And there were people that were mad at the pastor for political reasons, not moral or spiritual ones. And so they gave all their money to missionaries so the pastor wouldn't get paid. They wouldn't tithe because they were just trying to starve him out, to chase him out of the church that way. And, uh, you know, I was a brand new Christian, and when I saw that, this guy was such a wonderful pastor. He was he was a real godly influence in my life as a new Christian. I thought, why would they treat him that way? But you, you just never know what can happen. Okay, you can get you can get really bad things in a church, and there's no style of government that'll guarantee it won't go astray. I, I'll tell you that there is any kind of style of government that's ever existed has gone astray. And so that just shows you we live in a sinful world and we still got the sin nature. And the, and the number one thing that will keep a church from going astray, whether they're Episcopal, Presbyterian, or Congregational, is the continual study and teaching and authority of the Word of God for everybody. If the congregation and the leaders and the pastors are all together in the Scripture agreeing and, and having God do something to keep us in line, that's what's going to preserve us, not a style of government. Because people can vote for sin. All right? Some do when they vote for president. Well, no, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to go there. Yes? I can vouch for what Bob is saying, that the scripture has to be the sole authority and not just the government of that particular church. Because before coming to Twin Cities Fellowship, I've been through two churches both with really intense, bad situations. The first church, um, I was told to leave because um, I didn't see the pastor as the sole authority for the church, and I was told that in order to help get myself out of debt, I had to leave my checkbook at the church and 
pay my paycheck to the church and then pay my bills through the church computer. Oh. You know, and I had to go to the pastor to find out if I could buy this car or if I could. Not good. So the pastor was considered like God. Anything he said, just because he was in that position, God must have put him in that position, and I better listen to everything he says is coming straight from God. And if I didn't, I was in defiance to God. The last church I just came out of was more congregational government, and there were myself and two other elders who disagreed with the template of prayer coming in the church, and they were ignoring the elders. And that became a big, huge mess, you know, and God's done some things in there recently that have been good, but both situations have been both yeah. situations, and what Bob is saying is totally true. Yeah. It has to be spiritual. Yeah. And and uh, so what I was I preached on kind of preached I shared my heart last Sunday about how I understand this, and you know I guess I'm getting old enough I can have an opinion now. <laughs> can I, Lois? <laughs> Anyhow, some of you don't think I'm getting so old, but I sure think so. But I've been in the ministry for 30 years, and and I, having now heard from people all over the country and the problems, 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 there is no uh, there's no substitute. For the means of grace and the Word of God and people having the tools themselves to learn and to know and to grow. Because when we have that, that's what's going to keep us from the wolves. And if the whole congregation has that and some pastor comes along and gets in the office of pastor and starts preaching lies, he won't get anywhere. There's not anybody, he'll get no, they'll just won't listen to him. He'll have to go somewhere else to find an audience. Alright? But, um, that's what has to happen, and I, I want to spend the rest of my life arguing for that, that we absolutely need the tools, we need the Word, and we need to submit to the authority of Scripture. And then leaders should be not some unique characters up here, but people that are appointed because somebody has to make decisions and care for people's, uh, care for the flock. So it would be okay. I would, if this church changed and went congregational and we're going to vote whether they want to be or not. I think we could live with that. that, that uh, it doesn't, the way it is now, the elders can fire me. I always have been of the opinion that everybody should be able to be fired. To, to have a job where you cannot be fired is not a good thing. <laughs> you got one? I'm a mailman. <laughs> He's a mailman. <laughs> well, you maybe could if you did something really bad. If you start stealing the mail, I bet you they'd fire you. Veteran and a mailman, you can't beat that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could be on the Supreme Court. There you go. That'll get fired. <laughs> All right. So um, it's good to know that you're just a human being and and you need God's grace. So I think I, I mentioned a lot, a lot of you read that book by Boyce on. Um, whatever happened to the gospel of grace, but I, there's a role model church, in my opinion. They founded in 1829 and has been faithful to the gospel till today. So it shows that, in at least in a local church, apostasy is not an inevitable necessity. <laughs> so uh, and I think part of the, the best way to do that is to, to train up your own leaders from within a congregation so that people grow up trained in the truth so that they're not just coming in from some uh, outside agency that supposedly trains pastors. Not that I, I'm in favor of education. I'm not anti-education. But I think 
You need to be grounded in the local church while you're getting your education so that just the uh, officials at the seminary aren't the only ones having an influence. I was going to read something from my uh, William Lane here. The, the formulation indicates that the leaders were a link in the chain of tradition that accounted for the reliable transmission of the message of salvation to the audience. According to 2.3, which we read, the word of salvation began to be spoken by the Lord. Those who heard him subsequently became the preachers who certified to the community the saving word he spoke. God himself endorsing the integrity of their message with signs and wonders. The word was identical with the decisive eschatological speaking of God delivered through the Son, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, which we read. And the word of God, the saving action of God himself, is actualized. Within his perspective, tradition retains the character of the living word of God. So we were talking earlier about tradition. So sometimes the word tradition simply means the apostolic tradition, the teachings delivered by the Lord. So the, what we need to, the issue isn't whether something's traditional. It's traditional for us to have communion. That's true. But is it a tradition grounded in apostolic teaching? Yes. If it was not, then it would be non-authoritative. I mean, we can have traditions that aren't in the Scripture as long as they're not anti-Scriptural. We traditionally um, do outreaches. We traditionally have a Sunday school. Okay, It's not dictated in the Bible that you have a Sunday school for all the kids. But that's our tradition. There's nothing unbiblical about it. But when it talks about tradition as being the apostolic tradition, that is required. That's not negotiable. So that's what he means there. So the tradition retains the character of the living word of God, which confronted the community with the eschatological, it means end times, act of salvation. The expression is to speak the word of salvation or to speak the word of God are conceptually interchangeable. So the word of God is the word of salvation. The whole the message of, of Christ summarized in the New Testament is the message of God redeeming people through Jesus Christ. It's the message of salvation. Okay, we also have some more verses here. 1 Corinthians 4.16. Yeah, I better read 15 too. Okay. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. So Paul was willing to tell them to imitate him. Now, elsewhere, it says, well, I think that's our next verse. Let's read the next one, so we'll, we'll talk about both of them. 1, 1 Corinthians one eleven. No, that isn't. No. I was thinking, where's the, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Yes, 11.1. 1. I gave you the wrong one because I wrote it down wrong, but I know it's 11.1. Okay. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And then 2 says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Yeah, so there again it says, Keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. But he said, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Paul was putting a parameter around his being imitated, and that was in as much as he followed Christ. And so these traditions that we're talking about are apostolic traditions. And are they, like, yeah, the tradition was to sit under the teaching, and the teaching of the apostles, they would ask, they would sit under, they'd get together, break bread, and and sit under the teaching for hours. Yes, they would sit under the teaching, and they would, uh, 
Paul would come back and strengthen the churches and make sure they were being strong in the word. He'd send these epistles that we have that were strengthening the traditions that they'd been given. So the word tradition is not a pejorative term, but it can mean the good thing or because traditions, people, some, some iconoclastic type of persons go to an extreme and they don't want to see any traditions. But if you have zero traditions, you end up with chaos. It's, it's like you, you have no structure, you have no order whatsoever. Then, uh, well, I guess you can have a tradition of chaos. <laughs> but, okay. The Old Testament talks about remembrance a lot. Do things uh, in remembrance. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of passing on this knowledge of God through the generations. And, you know, in Deuteronomy it says, speak these things to your children coming and going. And these are these are traditional type things, uh, but where the Word of God and and the, uh, you know, the Gospel and, and salvation are transmitted from generation to generation. So traditions can be, uh, if they're rooted in, like you say, in the Word of God, as a way of transmitting Right. Truth and, and, uh, and it's also a way of preserving a pr- people with an identity. So, like, for instance, the Jewish people, the Passover is kept by Jewish people, even ones that are, really don't have much faith at all and wouldn't necessarily believe the Bible. They keep the Passover because that makes them a people, and the Passover is designed so that they never forget why they're a people. Because God brought them out of Egypt. And so when Jesus, and you probably know this, Mike, but we've talked about this sometimes, communion is the Christian, what ha- it was instituted at a Passover meal. Okay? And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, we're remembering that Jesus is the Passover. That Jesus brought us out of the Egypt of the world and sin. And then, and he's bringing us to the promised land of the kingdom of God. He says, remember, do this in remembrance of me, because it says that we proclaim the Lord's death. So he was the Passover lamb that died for our sins. Till he comes, he says, I won't drink this fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. So every time we have communion, we're keeping a tradition that reminds us of who we are. We're a people because of Christ's atoning death. And where we're going, he's coming, he's going to come again and establish the kingdom, and we're all going to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, so communion serves that same purpose of keeping a tradition that will remind us of the truths and who we are, and to give some stability. So these uh, hyper-iconoclastic ideas, uh, in the sense that let's just throw everything out and well, we see some of that in the emergent church. Uh, or, or some of them get their traditions from medieval Rome rather than from the Bible. But we'll just have whatever kind of uh, service happens today. We'll see. You know, And it, it really, in the long run, creates instability because we do need some sort of stability to feel like we can show up and we, it's predictable and, we're, and something's going to happen that's going to be beneficial. Okay, Philippians 3.17. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Okay, Pat, Paul said, pattern your, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow 
our example. So there's a community of people who have been uh, converted by the Lord and are submitted to the apostolic doctrine, which is the New Testament, and are wanting to live accordingly and to help one another to do the same. So that's how God establishes a church. And that's what's more important than anything else we could be doing. Yes? One, one thing, just the verse right after I think is, is interesting because it says, For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Yeah, there are many who are enemies of the cross of Christ. You know what I'm saying? In other words, there's the, we want to follow that pattern and that conduct, but he's constantly, it sounds like, there's always a fight. Yep. That there's. You know, it's kind of like that idea of get off one degree over time and get off. That's true. And we need to realize there is a real spiritual battle. And the, and the attack of Satan is going to be against the cross of Christ continually. Because that's the one way he's defeated. Remember, and it says uh, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And so the, the message of the cross is the one thing that Satan will continually attack. Right? Okay, um, well, we got five minutes here. Let's read uh, verse 13 and 8, and we'll get this started. Notice this. Now, on the heels of this, what we're talking about, these apostolic traditions and the conduct of those who led us, the next verse says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. <laughs> and so... Our faith is grounded in He who changes not. The immutability of God, the, the, the gospel didn't just happen under the New Testament, but it was conceived in eternity. And, um, it talks about the names in the book of life for the lamb, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And we talked about that verse before in Revelation. It either means the names were in the book of life before the foundation of the world or the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. But either way, the meaning is this plan of messianic salvation is eternal. Okay? And that, and that Jesus Christ existed as God and with God from all eternity. That's why when it says in Hebrews 1 that God spoke through Christ, it says through whom He made the world. So that makes Jesus unique. Jesus isn't just a religious teacher who was born under ordinary circumstances and became somebody that people followed, like Muhammad or, or someone like that. But that this is the Creator God coming into the world that He created. John 1.1, 1, 1, Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 and 2, Hebrews 1.3, uh, whose express uh, radiance of His person. It talks about the, the glories of Christ. And so Jesus said in John 8:58 before Abraham was I am. And he said in John 5 he said if you would have believed Moses you'd believe me because Moses spoke of me. So Jesus was uh, one spoken of in Torah particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Um, there was a time when only the Trinity existed in the universe. Father, Son and Holy Spirit co-eternal, in perfect unity and perfect fellowship. We can't comprehend eternal existence totally. It's, it's, it's quite mind-boggling. Um, there was a controversy uh, in the early church. I was thinking about, 
I read some other thing. I, I keep getting uh, these King James only people mad at me. <laughs> and they get very angry. And somebody sent me some bunch of tracks in the mail, you know, King James only tracks. And, and I was saying in there that the manuscripts, the, the biblical manuscripts that came from North Africa were written by the Gnostics. And I go, what? It's, you know, there's a good reason to learn church history because if you don't know church history, people can lie to you. Let me tell you, I'm going to tell you something that's related to what I'm talking about, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, day, and forever. That is a travesty to say that because they don't understand history. In North Africa, great Christian leaders arose, some of the finest, Tertullian, um, Cyprian, Athanasius. And Athanasius single-handedly fought against the Aaron. I mean, he had help, but he was the key person that God raised up to fight Arianism. And the motto, and it almost won out in the church at large. Arianism almost won. It had the support of, of, of a lot of people. Arianism had a little slogan that said this about Jesus. There was a time when he was not. That was the doctrine of Arians. Jehovah Witnesses are Arians. There was a time when he was not, they said. Athanasius stood against that, and he was from North Africa. Now, these people say all of the scriptures in North Africa were written by Gnostics. These people were the ones Tertullian wrote against Marcion, who truncated the scriptures. These are the people that put their lives on the line for the scriptures. In North Africa, they had a Donatist controversy. And during the Donatist time, one of the things that was going on was late in the third century, just before Constantine, one of the last persecutions against the church, they were confiscating the scriptures. And this was going on in North Africa. And what the Christians in North Africa did was turned over the writings of the heretics to the Roman authorities, because so the Roman authorities didn't know the difference between a Gnostic and a Christian. How they, they're not theologians. So they say, oh, sure, you can burn our scriptures. So they handed them over the writings of the heretics. <laughs> and, and many were, and they put their lives on the line. <clears throat> so here's these godly people that happen to live in Alexandria and Carthage and places like that that wrote wonderful Christian theology, who put their lives on the line for the scripture, who fought the heretics, who fought the Gnostics, and some idiot comes out with a tract saying those guys wrote, made the turn of scriptures into Gnosticism. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I read that and I, I'm telling you, it's hard to not get very angry. This is a, this is unbelievable. And the only way people can get by with these lies and slanders is because they prey on the ignorance of Christians. And if you learn church history, you'll find out that the, the great church leaders, North Africa is one of the strongest places of Christian scholarship and godly Christian living that there was. And they preserved the scriptures against the heretics and they fought the Gnostics. And there's not one shred of evidence that the manuscripts from Alexandria were written by Gnostics. And you people out there, if you're listening to me, it's a sin to lie like that. And I call on you to repent. If you're doing that thing, you repent. You're wrong and you're lying to the flock and you're harming the people of God and I will fight you. Yes. Thank you.
When you buy a King James Version, nobody's getting royalty. Even when you buy a NIV, you're benefiting uh, the owner of CNN and other. Uh, well, yeah, any Bible, you can go buy an ASV from 1901, there's no royalty on that either, just because it's old. And that's why you can get Matthew Henry's commentary and anything old, uh, the writings of the church fathers. The only price on them is the price of the printing. Okay. Okay, right. Here's why. Because when manuscripts are transcribed, they get longer, not shorter. Okay, Handel's Messiah is longer now than when Handel wrote it. Hymns now are longer than they were when somebody wrote it. Some hymns have six verses. The original author wrote four. Now, manuscript science is able to find use uh, the latest discovery of old manuscripts, whether the Dead Sea Scrolls, fragments of John that go back almost to the time of uh, Polycarp when John was still, who knew John. Uh, these things are a little bit shorter because the copyist added clarifying words in. And so you can just trace this history as they get newer and newer and newer. They get longer and longer and longer. So the, the conspiracy theorists are saying because there are some things taken out in, say, the Nestle uh, manuscript or the Greek text compared to the the Texas Receptus, therefore these people purposely took something out of the Bible for some evil New Age reason. No, no, that's not true. That's, that's fallacious reasoning. The King James, for example, uh, doesn't, there's two or three verses where the King James denies the deity of Christ, although they, they are not really trying to, they just don't know the Greek, where the New American Standard explains the deity of Christ because of the Granville Sharp rule that the King James translators didn't know. It says God, who is God and Christ, rather than making two persons God and Christ. Well, never mind. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, the King James is a fine translation, but people who say that uh, the Alexandrian manuscripts are written by Gnostics are liars. They are liars, they're deceitful, and they should repent of their wickedness. And unless they can prove that, which they can't prove, they have no reason to try to belittle the Bible. They're attacking the Bible itself. God bless you. Have, we'll see you upstairs.